Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. As a leader, you know the value of hiring great talent, and particularly talent with diverse experiences, perspectives, and backgrounds. Now, the power of the team that you've assembled now depends upon your ability to create an inclusive culture that's going to balance each individual's sense of uniqueness with their sense of belonging. So what we want to talk about today is what does that look like? What do you need to do? And how do you take steps to move in the right direction? My guest today is Dr. Stephanie K. Johnson. She's a researcher focused on the intersection of leadership and diversity, and she works with some of the best companies to implement evidence-based practices that reduce unconscious bias and increase inclusion. She's a member of the MG100 Coaches, was selected in the 2020 Thinkers 50 Radar List, and importantly for today, she's the author of the national bestseller, Inclusify, Harnessing the Power of Uniqueness and Belonging to build innovative teams. Um, she's done a ton of publicity on her work in her top journals and some major grant funding to support this work, over 170 meetings around the world, including at the White House, and featured on a host of places like The Economist, Newsweek, Time, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, Huffington Post, and the list goes on, CNN, ABC. We could say this I'd be talking all day, Stephanie, if I listed all of your publicity. So thanks for being a guest and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me and for such a nice introduction. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. It's a topic I care deeply about and one I think we use the language of, but don't often understand what it means we need to be doing or doing differently. But before I launch on that, I always like to ask why. So what got you started on this work? Why does it matter to you? Why? You know, I think some of it was, uh, I was a, I am a leadership researcher and I was studying what it takes to create successful leaders. I think that's uh, a business imperative to better understand that. And if you try to understand what it takes to create better leaders, you will immediately find discrepancies and differences between men and women, between male leaders and female leaders. So even simple things like the uh, behaviors like being really assertive positively predicts leadership leadership success for men, and in some instances negatively or just don't predict for women. So, I tried to get a better understanding of why this was, and as I did more and more work on this, I realized you know this is really, I think the most fascinating aspect of leadership research is some of these differences in how we see male and female leaders, leaders of color and white leaders. And then as I dove into that, what leaders can do, regardless of their race or gender or gender identity or sexual orientation or disability or whatever it might be, what can leaders do to create more inclusive workplaces? Yeah. Um, I made an interesting argument today with a client and I believe, so I'll get to test my theory with you. When I ask people to name a leader that they admire and tell me what it is that they admire about that person, 
I get attributes like they listen, they're a really good coach, they give good feedback, I feel trusted by them, they include me in decisions, they solicit my opinion, um, I have influence on them, they, you know, the list, that list goes on. That's the exact same set of behaviors I get if I ask people to identify how they, what makes them feel included or a leader that they admire that is an inclusive leader. And I'm come to the conclusion, like you, that great leadership is inclusive leadership. You can't separate the two. I, would, I mean, I would 100% agree with you, but I would also say that a lot of those essential skills that you just listed as inclusive leadership or a leader I admire are really associated with feminine leadership or like they're more commonly thought of as leadership traits. Um that women leaders exhibit. And it's not to say that other leaders can't exhibit or don't exhibit it, but I think it's interesting because I get the same feedback when you ask people about great leaders, but I I still don't think that's the prototype for leadership. I think when we think of who's the loudest person in the room or the most commanding, who has the most commanding presence or um, the person who's the most assertive is often the person who wins the leadership role, but people never mention that as traits I really admire. Well, that leader was so assertive, right? But we still we still tend to nominate those folks as leaders. We t- yeah, we do. We do. Um, I will disagree with you, though, that I think that more women are of one style and more men are the other. I see an awful lot of bleed over, and I see an awful lot of women who try to mimic that assertiveness style and become much more commanding than I think is in their best interest. So I'm not, I'm not convinced that it's, I'm convinced it's a stereotype of masculine style and feminine style. I'm not convinced it's practiced as masculine and feminine, but we could debate that all day. Let's not go down that line. Um, So why do you think inclusion matters in creating a high-performing team? I made that comment at the introduction, but do you agree with me and why? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, we know that diversity matters, right? Having difference of thought and different perspectives and a willingness um, to bring those perspectives to the table hinges upon the inclusiveness of the team. So I can have people with this really different expertise, or maybe even you and I having different views on, you know, what's more typical for male and female leaders. That's good, right? That means that we can get to the correct solution because we have different perspectives, but In many teams, people don't voice those different perspectives because they don't feel safe to do so or they don't feel included, I guess. So to me, inclusion is really the ingredient that you need regardless. I mean, I think it's particularly important when you have diversity, but to get people to share their opinions and perspectives and thoughtfully and respectfully disagree to ideally come to the best decision and not suffer from conformity and groupthink and all those things that we so often experience in our own teams. Yeah. Yeah. When I work with um, particularly people of color as the language we would use in the U S or black or Latinx, or I guess pick whatever label it fits for you around the world. And it does change around the world. um, Those minority group members, I find so many of them are worried about whether they will fit in on the team, whether they're going to be accepted of the team, whether they can bring their perspective and their experiences to the team discussion. And they turn almost turn themselves inside out on, can I say this and how do I say it? 
so that their impact, their um, presence, if you will, their willingness to assert a point of view that might be really critical for the team kind of gets curtailed because they're afraid it won't be heard. Now, I think that's a legitimate fear. At the same time, it's undermining our ability to get good ideas on the table. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. What's the point of having that diversity of perspective if you're not going to be able to bring it out? Um, And, you know, in some cases, it is, we have differences in language, for example, that may make people less comfortable voicing difference if they are not communicating in their native language. Um, But I think it's so much more than that, right? It's understanding customer populations and is really the benefit that we get from having diversity on the team. But people are, they learn that fear of sharing their ideas through experience. Like, I don't think that's an innate Innate. fear. Um, And so I think it just takes a lot of effort by leaders. It's not just like, I will, I'm going to allow you to give your perspective. Like that, the idea of Inclusify is that because we have these long experiences of maybe not getting our perspective heard, people speaking over us, interrupting us, or being told like, you know, that's just like a terrible idea and having it impact the way you're viewed and perceived. Um, Leaders have to be intentional about trying to get people's perspectives out on the table. And they can say, I want different ideas. I'd love to hear a different perspective on this over and over again. But that one time they say, I don't want your perspective right now because we have to make a decision quickly. That's the thing that sticks with people, right? Like, okay, well, it's not worth it. I cannot say anything and no one will ever ever know that I had this different perspective. That's right. Um, And I also think as a normal human being, regardless what the level of difference are, you're sitting on a team, um, you are the one who's different than everybody else. And you're conscious of the belonging of the fitting in side of the equation. And so you think, okay, I have to act like everybody else acts around here. And then we are turning that person into a bad version of everybody else. What's the point? So if I can't let you be your unique self, then we're in trouble. Okay. Now let's back up for a minute. We've been talking about this in terms of high-performing team, but I think we need to go back to the beginning, which is how do you define inclusion? What is this thing for you? Yeah. I mean, you really nailed it. I think it's um, the the same way that you framed it. It's creating a sense of belonging so that people, each person feels like they have an important role on this team. They're an essential valued member of the team and they can be their unique and authentic best self, right? So they're not doing the, the extra cognitive work all the time of trying to fit in and become, I love the way you said that just bad versions of other people. Um, But instead they're being their best self and, you know, it's not easy. Like there's an inherent tension in those two things, because if you want everyone to just bring their uniqueness all the time, I think it's, it becomes more difficult to create cohesion because we know that um, people like others who are like themselves, like a similar to me bias. So the more that I see us as similar, the easier it is for us to gel. So if I'm highlighting all our differences, that makes it more difficult. And it's easier to, um, create belonging if people don't bring their uniqueness. So it's like you kind of have both either side is easy, but to do both of them at the same time is, yeah. is like really, 
I guess the the magic, the special um, leaders are those who do that. I'm convinced that just about everything that we want to talk about in leadership that we really have people struggle with, we really want them to get them to do it and do it well, is about holding polar opposites in appropriate tension. Mm -hmm. And I can't think of a quality of leadership that isn't about balancing either the complexity of multiple approaches or completely polar opposites simultaneously. I give you a favorite one that I always talk about is this notion of short-term, long-term, or strategic and execution. Yes, we need that vision. Absolutely. But at the same time, if you're not focused on the tactical, get it done now, we're in trouble. I can't do one at the expense of the other. And so I agree with you. It's uniqueness and belonging, like so many qualities in leadership. All right. Now, let me ask you about an interesting observation I've had. So I see teams where, and we know if we've got more than one person of a category of our type or of a style, that it's easier for them to feel a sense of belonging because, you know, I'm not the only one. So you you don't feel quite so isolated in that. But I've noticed when there's a dominant style even, or a dominant approach or a dominant language, um, that that tends to win and we tend to silence intentionally or accidentally the uniqueness, okay? I've also noticed though, when the team is absolutely heterogeneous, meaning there is no dominant, that those teams have to work harder at coming together. And if they put in that work, they actually have a better team. Like it's one of those unique experiences that people talk about as a dream team. So how do you see this heterogeneity versus homogeneity? Yeah, I mean, exactly what you said. This is the uniqueness and belonging. It's having, um, I think what you're saying for the heterogeneity is, is there actually difference? With uniqueness and belonging, I guess maybe the only difference would be, um, is that uniqueness expressed? Because I think there's often heterogeneity on teams, but people don't share it. They just kind of keep it quiet. So you might yeah. think you're on an all-white team, uh, but maybe like I'm Mexican-American. People don't always quickly identify me as such, but if they, and so I don't have to share it, but if you brought that out, then you would realize you have more heterogeneity. Um, And I think that is the dream team, isn't it? Like not having a one dominant culture or perspective or, um, you know, I think it's all of that demographics and being able to surpass that and create a team that's really cohesive and that belonging piece is really strong. Right. Okay. So we got to dig into how to do that. I have to do a parallel story. You talked about Mexican-American and I told a story just recently about growing up in a very small town and about the challenges that was for me and the fact that I never felt like I fit. I still don't feel like I fit. I don't feel like I fit with my family. I don't feel like the town. I feel like I don't fit. And I got a comment back from somebody who was in a completely different culture, completely different. It's like, I can relate. That's how I feel. So we often don't know those other parts of each of the individual on the team that play into their uniqueness or their lack of feeling of belonging. And if we could draw some of those out, we'd probably find a lot more heterogeneity and a lot more common experiences than we realized. So, okay, fair enough. 
Okay. I have to ask another question. So one of the things that you talk about, um, I know in the book is the power of psychological safety. And in fact, we've just been talking about it in the context of teams and feeling like it's safe to say what I'm really thinking or what my perspective is. And I love Amy Edmondson's work. She's you know sort of pioneered this. A lot of people have added to it. She's been a guest on the show. The question though is, it's, we know it's right. It feels right. The research tells us it's right, but how? So what's your advice to leaders on how to create that sense of psychological safety on a team? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think she has already identified some of the key steps, but you know, I would say asking for different opinions, um, encouraging team members to help each other, um, positively reinforcing people sharing those different perspectives. Because I think the thing that that she's really found and other researchers who study this is a lot of what people are fearing is making a mistake. Mm -hmm. And so if you can make failure, small failures, especially um, acceptable or celebrated, like this is good progress to have tried something out, even if it didn't work, then people are more willing to risk that. And and that's really, I mean, that's where we get innovation, right? If you're, yeah. if you don't want innovation, just keep doing the same thing. But if you do want innovation and improvement, you're going to have to take risks. And so rewarding those risks, even if they don't pan out, I think is the key to making yeah. people feel like they can contribute. Yeah. So everyone will say, make risk, including Amy, she says, make risk normal and share your own sense of vulnerabilities and the mistakes that you've made or the things you've gotten wrong or your own limitations. I mean, those are all good things to, sh- to say. And we all know that. But here we are running a big global company. My boss and boss's boss are breathing down my neck to get it right and move it fast. And there's not a whole lot of tolerance for mistakes. And I just talking to a leader today and one of my client firms who said, I struggle with how to do this vulnerability. I hear what you're saying, Wanda, but I, so what's your advice? I think start small. Um, You know, if it's the big decision that's going to sink the company, that's not really where you begin, Mm -hmm. but there, you know, people say take risks. I'm not sure that's quite accurate. I think it's take calculated risks, right? Know when um, <clears throat> we're going to try out things that are different. If it's a different, even for things like, I hear this a lot when I'm working with people who are trying to practice their inclusive leadership, right? Like, okay, so I'm not naturally empathetic. I I tend to steamroll other people. And now I've been getting coaching and being told like, you need to listen to other people. And it feels like risky to do that, right? Because it's something new. People might be like, what are you doing? (laughs) They're going to respond with surprise. So I think it's like, start small. Like you start in practicing things in, I even tell people like, do it outside of work. Like ask (laughs) someone who you don't work with, your partner or a friend, try to be more empathetic with them and ask them questions. And then you can see kind of what works and what doesn't. It probably allays some of the fear and takes down the like awkwardness. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. of taking a risk and then do it with someone who you feel really safe with. And then I even encourage people to like name the dynamic and say, I am working on, and this is again, in, in low risk situations, Very you don't want to do this with the other CEO you're trying to go through a merger with or something, right. but um, I'm working on these skills. And so I'm going to be practicing 
them in this conversation or in this context. You might notice this happening. And so I'm just going to let you know that I'm doing, I'll, I'll take your feedback on how it's going. Mm-hmm. So that, cause you're building up a muscle, like, especially, you know, we talk about empathy. People think empathy is a, something you're born with. Like some people are empathetic and this is true, but everyone can become more empathetic. And as leaders get promoted through the ranks, they often become less empathetic because they're spending less time listening to other people and more time making the decision. So it's like, you just have to work that muscle a little bit to get it back into shape. Yeah. And develop it even stronger. Um, Paul Extell, who's also been a guest, has book, a recent book called Compassionate Leadership. And he has this lovely piece of advice that I've been telling everybody everywhere. You know, you need to listen, but time is your enemy and listen. That urgency and sense of I got to move and so on. So he says, listen for four minutes. That's it. Listen intently, four minutes, and then say, thank you. Thank you for telling me. I appreciate your perspective and I've got to get to a meeting. But just the act of those four minutes. So I find if people will just make this whole empathy and tuning in and hearing a small task, it becomes a whole lot easier than thinking, oh, I've got to transform myself. Yeah, I like that. I do think that's right. You know, let's every journey starts with a single step, right? So if it's four minutes, you get you're getting better. But I would add also, you know, listening alone might not be enough, but I use this like I call it lip, but and I probably didn't even make this up, but it's um, listening, inquiring. So maybe you still do it in four minutes, but, and then paraphrasing to make sure you've understood right. because otherwise you just listen and you might have missed the person's message, especially sure. if listening is new to you. So, yeah, that's great. Paraphrase. I often use the word synthesize. That's how people yeah. know that you've, they've been heard is the synthesis. But I love Paul's statement is if you have to start somewhere, just listen intently for four minutes. I think that's just a great, and I agree with you. It's the paraphrase and then the inquire is also, you know, gold standard on this one. Um, okay. So in psychological safety, we want to create a place where people can express opinions without fear of being embarrassed or of making a mistake. Um, Because those are the two big ones that, you know, if I got it wrong, or if I don't understand everything, or you reject me, or I feel humiliated in some way, those are, so that's what people avoid. They don't want to want to feel those. All right. Now let's talk about another challenge with this whole world of inclusion. Um, And that has to do with our language. So it used to be DNI, diversity and inclusion. And we're now talking I and D inclusion first and diversity. And now we've gone to DEI or EID or IED or I, you know, whatever it is. So inclusion, equity, and diversion. So that's all important. Those are important changes. And I was just reading a New York Times article literally this week. I think I'm pretty tuned in, but I learned language I didn't know. So we say LGBTQ, and now we're saying LGBTQIA+. I missed the I and the A and never even mind what it stands for. But I can imagine that managers are getting frustrated with a constant change in their language. And the how do I keep up and how do I not get it wrong? And I used to be able to say Latino and I don't say Latino anymore. Um, I used to say African-American. I don't say that anymore. I say black. And if I'm in the UK, I'm going to use completely different language anyway. So help with this. How do we begin to think about the language and our own fears of making a mistake? Sure. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I think I'm totally with you. I say, 
um, I like to use the term Jedi, justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Okay. Um, just another one. I, but, you know, I think the yeah, I think the way you describe that points to why this is difficult because it's not just a language that you have to learn once and then you're done. And nothing else is that way either, right? Like if you used to code in DOS, like you've learned new computer languages by now. And, and we're really good at updating our skills on things like that. And, and I think the big difference is when I don't know the new, you know, the new version of Python or something, I don't feel ashamed about it. I'm like, oh, there's a new version. I'm going to take this class. Or if I'm, you know, or get someone to give me a briefing on what that is. And I like, it's a learning orientation, right? It's like, oh, I need to update my skills. But I think the difference with diversity and equity and inclusion and um, all of this, the language around identity is I think people are so fearful of being like a bad person. Like, oh, well, you're not supportive of the LGBTQIA plus community because you didn't know the term and you don't want to be a bad person. Right. So I think instead people shy away from using the language or they maybe don't use it or make kind of a um, LGB or whatever they're calling themselves these days. You know, those statements that there is actually like a Mm self-protective mechanism versus just like taking the learning perspective of, you know, we're all trying, we're all stumbling forward together as we learn and trying to be respectful of different communities and identities. And so if you say something and it's wrong and someone tells you, first of all, you know, you're doing a good job because someone told you, because most of the time people don't tell you, right. Cause they don't think you want to hear it. But if people are willing to tell you, then I guess I would just say like, take that as a compliment that people thought that someone thought you would be open to hearing it and just say, thank you. Thank you for telling me that. I need to learn more about that. That's that's something I'm going to go do, and then do it. You know, and it's and then recognize it's going to it's going to change, right? We're this is like an evolving mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. process, and I think it's just keeping up on the on the cutting edge and trying to stay current. And that's what leaders do, right? Like who who are the leaders you know that are like, oh, guess what, leadership done. I totally got this. Not good leaders. That's for sure. It's a lifelong journey. That's what I say. And you're never going to get it right. It's just a lifelong journey. I think it's true for this as well. Um, So I think there's, I think it's easy for people to feel that language doesn't matter. Okay. That I, but if you think about this notion of in this inclusion space, what we're doing in effect is fighting against stereotypes. And every time I put a language on something, I am attaching a stereotype. So in one form or another. So I think in ways our language keeps evolving to try to keep breaking down the stereotypes. And if I think you think about it that way, it's, I don't know, for me, it's a little bit easier than to say, right, I got to stay up with the language. Yeah. Um, And some of it's hard. Like, uh, you know, currently on the whole race relations, people of color, and language, I'm going to give you an example from my world, for decades in doing assessments of leadership personalities, we have often talked about the dark side of leadership. So that underside where it's not people at their best, it's when they're a little bit at their worst or when they're stressed out. And it's been in the literature 40, 50 years, everybody knows it, and it's a common vernacular, okay? 
But we now need to be conscious that all the time, everything is dark or black or heavy color. It's seen as bad. And you know, if I have dark skin, that is not necessarily a positive attribute. I don't want to hear it anymore. I'm tired of it. So as aggravating as it is for me to change my professional language, I think it's important. And I think we have to tune in to how people feel about the unintended consequences of the languages that we use. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think that's huge. And I guess the other way I, I talk about this and this exact topic in Inclusify, and it's like, I hear, I heard many, many leaders as I interviewed folks for the book say, why do I have to change my behavior? Like the way I communicate, like, why do I have to do it? And it's like, you don't have to do it but do you want to be effective? To what extent do you want to be able to lead all different types of people? Because if there's people on your team that are too busy um, trying to cover and mask and act and fit in that their cognitive resources are diverted away from the task, if there's people who have been hurt or harmed from microaggressions or are, you know, at the moment feeling stung by the language being used, they're not going to be as good a team member as they could otherwise be. They're thinking of leaving your team, right? They're thinking of mm-hmm. yes, of finding some place that they can really belong right. and be their unique selves. And so it's like, you don't have to change. There's lots of things you have to do or don't have to do, but do you want to be as effective as possible? And in my experience, a lot, like when leaders are coming to talk to me, the answer is yes, right? right? right. And so here's one way to do it. And it's, and it's like so many... companies, organizations, people believe deeply in respect and being respectful of others. Mm -hmm. And, and then if you just think of it in that terms, like this may not be treating this person the way they, the way they want to be treated or the way that you would even want to treat them. Right. Even if you didn't know it, then I think it becomes pretty quickly, like it's, it's worth it. People feel like they want to do it. And then it's just like, you know, stumbling forward and accepting you're going to make mistakes and giving yourself the grace. And hopefully other people do too, to recognize that you're trying and it's a learning journey. I think it's part of, I mean, you sort of said it, it's the, the sense that you care, mm-hmm. that you care enough to try to get it right for the people that work for you. I think that's yeah. the, like, that's the thing you need to have in the forefront of your mind and that it is evolving and you're going to make mistakes and you just keep, you keep moving. So on that, Stephanie, let's say I am leading a team and let's say I made a mistake and let's say it actually really truly offended somebody on my team. Wasn't my intention, but that's what happened. What do I do about that? Yeah. So first I would say I would let go of the intention because this is where I think the, um, this is the most common response is that's not what I meant. That's not what I intended. And so people are defensive, right? And you're so sensitive. That's not what I meant. Like you interpreted this incorrectly. Yeah. And maybe flip that dynamic a little bit to say, you know, we know it's not your intent. It's the impact that you had. And if you know the impact rather than arguing about the intent, I think the simple response is to apologize and thank them for, um, I, I see like, stop, this is like ridiculous. Stop, drop and role model. So stop before you defend yourself and say, that wasn't what I meant. Just give yourself a moment, take a breath, pause, 
drop an apology and, or thank you. Thanks for telling me that. I apologize. And then role model to other people in the room, um, this behavior of like, I'm going to learn more about that or, you know, thank you for letting me know because, you know, I want to be as inclusive as I can be. And I'll give you my example. Um, I was on a zoom meeting. This is a little while ago, early in the pandemic. And, and I actually didn't do it today either, but I didn't add my pronouns to the end of my name. And so someone in, in the zoom unmuted and said, and in front of like a hundred people, you know, it's for someone who's talking about inclusion, it's not very inclusive that you didn't put pronouns after your name. And I, you know, I just wanted to defend myself to say, I don't even know how to change my name on zoom. Like I am new to this world and pronouns are new to me. Like, I mean, now, now it doesn't feel as new. I I don't know, but at the time um, I hadn't, I hadn't seen as many people, especially in the zoom context. Like I know about the pronouns people often um, included in their email signature. And I'm familiar. I have friends who use different pronouns, um, but on the zoom, because I hadn't been on that many zooms, I hadn't even noticed people doing this. And so all I wanted to do is defend myself in front of a hundred people and say all the reasons why I hadn't done it. And instead I just had to like take a deep breath and say, yeah, I am so sorry that I overlooked that. And thank you for pointing that out. I think it's, um, and it's important to say, how do people feel about that one? And then say, to make a decision about what you want to do. I love where you started with this, because I think people say, it's not my intention. And I think that's right. It's never our intention to do harm. But when you say, that's not my intention, you're now making the other person the wrong for one. And that's where the harm comes. It's like, you shouldn't be so sensitive or you should understand how I felt or you should know what I really meant. It's what you're saying, even if you don't say those words. And so letting go of that intention is just great advice. Okay, Stephanie, this is a great spot to take a break. Um, So my guest today is Dr. Stephanie Johnson. The book that I'm highly recommending is called Inclusify, Harnessing the Power of Uniqueness and Belonging to Build Innovative Teams. Um, we've been talking about sort of all the challenges that go in this space of being an inclusive leader, including the psychological safety, including making okay to make mistakes, including what do you do when you do make mistakes, taking a learning attitude, that willingness to admit that you don't know everything you need to know and you might get it wrong. You're going to keep working on it. All of those dynamics, which are part of your mindset. When we come back from break, I want to shift that and focus into what is it that you can do as a manager that's going to make a difference. And we'll be right back. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. 
Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement, and we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. And with me today is Dr. Stephanie K. Johnson. The book that we're talking about is Inclusify, creating a culture where you really get the innovation and the power out of the diversity that you've hired. And the core concept to succeed in this one is that each individual needs to have this lovely balance between being able to bring their uniqueness and their sense of belonging. And that when we get that balance right, that's the magic for an inclusive culture. We've also talked about how hard it is to get this right. As the world is evolving, there's so much more to learn. We keep breaking down stereotypes and it will continue to evolve. So just admitting that you've not got it perfectly and continuing to learn is sort of the attitude that's going to make the difference. All right. Now, I want to talk about, Stephanie, some things that I hear from clients all the time. So working with managers, I hear routinely, men and women, by the way, that, quote, I try to treat everyone the same. Mm -hmm. So you get the intention of that. I want to be fair and equitable. But what's wrong with that approach? Right. (laughs) Regardless of I think diversity or inclusion, I think that's just maybe kind of missing the mark because as a leader, you're trying to treat everyone in a way that's going to ensure their success and people need different things. And so, you know, if someone has a hearing disability or is hearing impaired, you give them what they need to be able to do their job, right? Like headphones or whatever it might be. The person, someone who's not hearing impaired, you wouldn't give those headphones to. It doesn't make any sense, right? But you give each person what they need to be successful. Um, and it, I guess the other thing in doing that is the, the idea that everyone's the same is 
directly against the idea of uniqueness. Like you, you, you try to hire people who have different skills and perspectives to add to the team, and then you're going to treat them all the same, but they're all different. We all need different things. So I guess I, I hear that all the time too. I think I was taught that yeah. in school, like treat, you treat everyone the same and treat everyone the way you want to be treated. And, and I probably used the same language at some point. And I think now, you know, maybe just like a slight shift in that is treat everyone the way they need to be treated to be successful. Okay. And that's, and treat everyone the way they want to be treated, not the way you want to be treated. Right. Right. Yes, because what I might want to motivate me or inspire me is not necessarily what's going to motivate or inspire you. And so I've got to ask and learn and be open to giving you what you need. I think managers worry that they get inequitable in doing that, that um, this not the, it's not equal opportunity for everybody. And I think if you focus on what does each person need to do their job, you're probably in pretty good shape. And then I think don't try to mind read, ask, Yeah, just ask. All right. So let's talk about another common one, which is colorblind. I am colorblind or genderblind. Yeah. So what's your view on this approach? Yeah. I mean, it's the same as the treating everyone the same. It's, and I get, I think I learned that in school too, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, and I still have folks, you know, all the time say, no, I'm very sure you're supposed to be colorblind, but Again, that is minimizing the uniqueness that people bring. Um, it's also, if I say that I'm colorblind, like it's unlikely, first of all, that I am, but it also is suggesting that maybe you haven't experienced inequities because of your race or gender. Um, and so like, I'm not even going to see it rather than recognizing the fact that this is something that you have as part of your life experience. And it might be very important to you. Like, I don't know that I want people to be blind to my identity. Like I bring my identity everywhere I go. So I think it's treating people again, the way they want to be treated and recognizing that it's probably not even accurate, right? Like um, it's a big differentiator in predicting inclusive leadership success is letting go of that colorblind ideology um, and taking the perspective of uniqueness. Right. All right. I love that answer to it. If you stop to think about it, uh, two of us women on the call, I don't want somebody to pretend that I'm not a woman. I don't want you to over highlight it either, but it is, I mean, that's part of who I am. So I don't want you to pretend that I'm somehow some androgynous person. Other people might want that. I don't. Right. So again, it's figuring out what it is that the individual wants, I guess is the right thing. Okay. Fair enough. And I think also the research is very clear that we are not colorblind or genderblind. There's also been um, recently all the stuff around privilege and the fact that it's the privileged class that can ignore both their race or their gender. It's not the same for everybody else. And so there's some sensitivities to how complicated that may have been for people. Okay. Now let's talk about my favorite which is meritocracy. So I know way too many clients who say, we're going to create an inclusive culture based on meritocracy, as if meritocracy is the answer for inclusivity. So what's your view of this one? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that would be great, right? Um, Well, so I guess a couple of things. One, there's this, a body of research, it's called the the myth of meritocracy is, Mm -hmm. um, and I wish I did this research because it's so cool, but 
it basically shows that when you tell people this is a meritocracy, they actually become more biased in favor of majority group members. I think maybe subconsciously we have this um, dichotomy set up between diversity and meritocracy. If we're going to go meritocracy, people actually slightly favor um, majority group members. And so it doesn't work. I don't like the term meritocracy. I say, just lay out your criteria then, right? And say what it is that you're trying to be meritocratic about. Because if you're just hiring the best person for the job, you're probably hiring someone similar to yourself, or you're using what I think of as flawed metrics of mm-hmm. meritocracy that might be um, contaminated with other things. Like, so I'm a college professor, right? And people really care about where you went to school. And that can be used as meritocracy. I went to like a really great undergraduate Claremont McKenna College and I went to Rice for my PhD, which is like a really great school. And I would love to think that those things are merit, right? But we know there's there's other things that are wrapped up in that. Um, and I have these statistic, statistics that I think are pretty mind-blowing. I'm just going to share a couple. Um, okay. But one of them is that 21%, a fifth of students at one prestigious university, um, Dartmouth, come from the upper 1% of income earners in the U.S. Wow. Yeah, right? That's surprising. And if you look at the bottom, pick a school like Yale, 2% of students at Yale come from the bottom 20% of income earners in the U.S. So like none, right? (laughs) Um, And if you continue, like you can do this for every school. I just picked a couple, but um, when you look at those, income, the income inequality of access to higher ed, that's like one of the main criteria we use as meritocracy. We recruit from, you know, if you're in the Bay Area, you recruit from Stanford and Berkeley. And um, if you're on the East Coast, you might recruit from Harvard and Yale. And then you should know that you're not getting a random sample of meritocracy from the population. You're, it's laden with a lot of other things. So, you know, did folks, um, parents go to college, that's a pretty good predictor of whether they go to college and what college they go to. And even things like um, legacy, college legacies, you can get into Harvard if your parents went to Harvard. Is that meritocracy? When you, when I hire you, the fact that your parents went to this prestigious school or bought a building for the university, is that what I'm trying to capture when, it, when I call it meritocracy? And it's like, it's not that it, you shouldn't um, look at student achievement, but I think it's, we're so uncomfortable with saying like, oh yeah, I'm going to hire someone because of their, because I don't want to let students get admitted to universities because of their race or gender or whatever it is. But if their parents went there, that's totally fine. Or if they donated a ton of money, that's. We appreciate that. Legally, please, not illegally and not not manufactured as we've seen in headlines. That's funny because that college admission scandal, I think really brought this to light. And for people who believed that school get, you know, going to these schools is a meritocracy, they had to like, just let that go because that these were the, like, yes, these are illegal. Those were examples of illegal behavior, but like people do this legally all the time. Right. Just right. 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 That's how we got slipped into that slope. Plus we have the belief factor of kids that are incredibly smart, incredibly capable in school who don't believe that they can find a way to make it work financially, 
um, just their own comfort level, feeling that they belong. I mean, all those factors, even if the school would say absolutely, totally 100%, there's this fear that I can't make it there. And you don't, you don't even try, you don't even get there. Yeah. So um, I think it's, it's, there's so many factors in it. I'm going to turn this inside company though. And I'm going to do this by way of a story I heard very recently. So we have a company that believes in meritocracy. And when you're in a sales function, it's probably easier to be meritocratic than in many other places because we can look and say, well, what sales revenue did you generate? And then we will comp and promote and all those wonderful things according to a concrete metric that feels meritocratic. Okay. And I would sort of support that one. Except here's the story one woman on the team, uh, she's the one who has agreed, by the way, to work through third party contractors for part of her sales. Except that when the contract is actually landed, it doesn't go to her credit, it goes to the end client, um, client manager which is appropriate because now, even though we sold through a third party, that client has to be managed by us. And we want to get that right. We don't want to mess it up. It makes a lot of sense. But here's a story. So now who gets credit for the sales figure at the end of the year? The guy, as it turns out, managing the clients and that client portfolio. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now she is not managing the clients and the client portfolio. That's true. But she's done all this work through this third party in order to bring that business in and gets zero credit for it. This is where meritocracy goes wrong. We fail to appreciate all the things that go into an opportunity somebody has a number attached to. Absolutely. I mean, I I think that's a great example, but I'll say like I hear far worse in sales of like this, you know, we know this client this blue chip client really works better with men or, um, you know, the same thing for BIPOC communities. Like, well, you know, for this client, they might feel more comfortable with someone who's more similar to them to close yeah. the sale. Yeah. And um, I mean, it's, but I do think sales is a better metric than like my opinion of like, you've done a good right, job, right. but, but I think it is like, these things are, they're complex. And I know we want to, we're trying to make things fair, but we're not even giving the same opportunities to people, right? Like who's, who are the leads that you get um, when it comes to sales? That's right. That's right. This is my other pet peeve on the meritocracy is that we take our premier lead that we know is going to generate the greatest sale, the greatest kudos, the highest visibility and so on. And is it actually a meritocracy who forgets it at the end of the day? No, it's usually, it goes to my favorite Mm -hmm. or the one I gave the last big lead to, which they proved they could do it on. And so they get the second one. So I I think we have to look hard at where the inequities are in our meritocracy and work to shake them out. And I think that's your point. Okay. So let me turn the conversation. You have five actions that you think leaders should do. Tell us what those five are. Absolutely. So, I mean, there's so many places to start, but I think the number one, I think, step that all leaders need to work on is empathy. And so working on the, the listening and understanding and you can paraphrase and, um, but that, I think that's the foundation for all of the others. And, you know, I interviewed leaders, of fortune 500 companies who were doing a really good job in my view at 
diversity and inclusion. Uh, like the CEO of Starbucks, Kevin Johnson, right when he started. And I'm like, so what do you do that is so you know unique? How do you do this? And he's like, well, I just understand my people. And I did that by walking around and um, talking to them. Amazing, right? Like how cool would it be to talk to your CEO? But without that, how do you ever understand right. people's different experiences and what, you know, what's making them successful or what's not? So I think empathy um, is one that's really huge. I think that learning orientation or like having this, um, when you enter a group meeting, when you're running a meeting, you're really trying to get all the different perspectives from people because you believe they're valuable seems to be this, you know, big differentiator and leaders that are more inclusive because people want to contribute, right? Like I, if I go to work, I spend most of my time at work. I want to believe that my efforts led to important outcomes that I improved things. I'm not just sitting in the meeting. I'm actually doing something and not everyone, I think 35% of people feel comfortable contributing during meetings. And so this isn't just a race thing. It's not a gender thing. It's like, there's a lot of people just sitting in meetings, not contributing because they don't feel comfortable. And so the extent to which leaders can bring out those ideas or perspectives and, you know, reinforce them, create the psychological safety to get them is going to be like a second um, really huge one. And these two both really go to the idea of uniqueness, like getting mm-hmm. the uniqueness out. Um, and then I'll give, I'll tell you a couple that relate to belonging, but okay. I wonder if those two resonate with you and your experience. Yeah, I think um, for me, I believe that getting this empathy piece right and jettisoning the I put myself in your shoes kind of idea of empathy, that it's not how I would feel in your situation. It's how do you feel? What's your perspective? Even if I would feel differently, I think that's where the empathy really becomes powerful. And if you can listen with that point of view to how does somebody else feel, how are they experiencing it? I can drop my intention. I can drop what should be. It can drop what I would do. And I can tune into that person. So I just think that's, and I love your statement at the beginning, giving each person what they need to be successful just feels to me like that, of course, great. And yeah, learning orientations, because that learning orientation gives you the willingness to say, ah, I made a mistake there. Or, oh, we didn't see that. We should have seen that. Or what else is there that we should talk about? Or I didn't get that language right. How do I do this and make it right for you? Uh, That if you can't get that one, then you're never going to get the psychological safety and all the other stuff that comes with what we know makes great teams. Absolutely. So I'm 100% on board with you. All right. So those are two for uniqueness. How yeah. about for belonging? So for belonging, I'll start with one that I think we're all lacking so much right now, and it's connection. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I wrote Inclusify in t- between 2016 and 2019, right? Like the book came out in 2020. It was being printed before COVID began. And right. so most of I think the challenges that leaders were having were around uniqueness. How can I let people be their best authentic self? And they were really good at belonging. We have all these things. We have happy hours and we have, you know, we have golf outings and we do all these things, um, coffee, whatever it is at work um, to create this cohesive team t-shirts. We wear the same t-shirts, whatever. And now I think that's really flipped because as far as uniqueness goes, I don't know about you, but 
I cannot leave myself at home when I'm sitting at home. Like, I just don't know. Like I usually, I go to work and, you know, I wear a suit and heels and I try not to laugh extremely loud in the hallways because it's like, that's just not the culture. It's not like a jubilant culture. And so I like laugh really loud in my office, my door closed if something makes me laugh. And so I try to like, like anyone else, right. I'm like trying to fit the culture. Um, how do you do that at home when your kids are walking into your zoom screen and have this cat that thinks she's a star. So she comes and sits on my laptop and she's like staring at herself on the screen. Like, is that, (laughs) um, and I, (laughs) and I think everyone feels that way. Like we're hanging out in people's houses. We see people's partners. We see like, it's, I think the uniqueness is up, but the belonging, like we're seeing like really high turnover, um, in a lot of high belonging companies that are like a lot of tech companies that have a lot of in-office time where they get massages and have meals together and everyone's at home. And if you don't have that connection, you can just go to the company that pays you, you know, a tiny bit more, gives you a little bit better stock option or um, whatever it might be. So it's, that was a very long introduction to say, we need to plan activities to build human connection. Cause it's not just the empathy, me understanding you in a two way. It's like, creating a team where we yeah. have this shared sense of purpose. And um, some of that is just reinforcing the idea that the team's success is, is success. Like we want our team to be successful. And so it's, you know, team rewards, team bonding, um, helping each other out. Like a lot of, there's a lot of challenges in the last year. The best teams are those where folks stepped up to help each other. Not because they were told they had to, but because they wanted to. Right. Um, So I think that's the biggest one is, especially as we reintegrate into the office, for those of us who've been more remote, finding ways to still create belonging between people in the company, but also people on their team. Right. 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 And that would say, especially as we go forward with all sorts of hybrid working environments where I'm likely to not have the whole team together in a location, maybe ever. It's either a global team, they're not going to be afford to come together, or some are working in one location, some in another location, or some are on one schedule, another schedule. And I think we're going to live with the hybrid for years to come. In that sense, we have to ask a really hard question. How do I build connection among the team members? Because I agree with you. That's the glue that brings that team together, where you're committed to the team, to the team's goals, to each other's success. You're giving your best. That's what keeps us staying. Okay. Yeah. All right, Stephanie. There's there's a a tiny bit more. So those are only three. Yep. And the last two are um, maybe surprising, but I'll say like when I did the research for Inclusify, this was, you know, it was pre-George Floyd's murder. I, I think there was a focus on racial equity and definitely gender equity, but not the way there is today. Right. Right. Like it, every company is talking about this. 260 of the Fortune 500 have, you know, released statements around George Floyd. And, and so there's a much bigger emphasis. But even before that, I found something pretty surprising around this idea of inclusion. And it's that a lot of folks feel excluded by inclusion and it's mm-hmm. typically mm-hmm. majority group members, but it doesn't, you know, if the focus is the company saying like, we really need to focus on 
um, racial equity for our black employees. Then Latinx employees are like, what about me? And Asian and Pacific Islander employees are like, what about me? And women are like, what about me? And, and so I think there's a couple of really important things. I think it's totally right to focus on racial equity for black employees. And I think that you need to communicate to people that this is like in a transparent way, what you're doing, exactly what you're doing. Um, so people don't feel like, well, this just means I'm never going to get ahead. Right. Yeah. And then at the same time, bringing everyone, I call it aligning, but bringing everyone into the conversation to contribute to how we're going to get this done. And so that means engaging majority group members. There's some statistic, like 96% of companies that engage white men on gender equity efforts have successful outcomes versus 30% who don't because gender inclusion means all genders, right? right? And if we believe in the power of diversity and getting different perspectives, doesn't it seem insane that we aren't getting the perspectives of majority yep. group members or men or Caucasian whites when we're talking about diversity? That's, I think it's just kind of missing the mark. And so if, right. I think if we're going to be really successful at diversity and inclusion, especially moving forward, integrating back in the workplace, I think it's really going to take everyone. And so um, bringing everyone into the inclusion conversation is and being transparent about what you're doing are the last two really key steps um, to making it work. Great. Great. I love that notion that inclusion means bringing everybody's voice in, including the majority group members and not making them wrong in expressing their opinion, just as we don't want to make anybody else wrong in expressing their opinion, hoping that in that process, we can come to some common point of view that is a way forward for us. Fascinating discussion. Stephanie K. Johnson, the book is called Inclusify. I can't even begin to summarize what I take away as the highlights, but I love this notion of the empathy, meaning not treat people how you want to be treated, but how they want to be treated learning orientation, and then the sense of belonging, building connection within the team, um, making sure that everybody feels included and aligning the organization. So Stephanie, thank you for being a guest. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Join us next week for another episode and getting out of your comfort zone. And if you enjoy this podcast, then please like us on your favorite podcast player. If you want to learn more, check out our subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.